Hey, and welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes, your dutiful host. And I'm excited for episode 78 of the podcast. We have an incredible guest who is extremely thoughtful and interesting in Sahadev Sharma, who writes for The Athletic. And I'm so happy. What's really interesting about like putting together the podcast now is with baseball season in Chicago over with and has been over with for a while, I can actually get baseball writers on to talk about covering baseball. Because, you know, they've got a little downtime before the, the the Cubs make a decision about their managerial because there's the the blackout issue when it comes to having news inside the window of the World Series. So it's great because I when I go out to Wrigley Field or, or 35th and Shields, I get a chance to talk with, with these guys in person. And I'm like, man, they'd be such a – like I'd love to talk about whatever with this guy or this guy or – this woman who covers baseball, but I never really get the chance because they're working because it's a grueling grind. It's a great job, but it's still a job. Everything is relative and it is difficult to cover baseball because you are working all the time. So this is kind of the down window, which gives me a chance to talk with interesting people who cover the game like Sahadev. I, I love his work. And I'm so happy that he had time to to get because he's always doing something. There's always another angle that he's looking at when trying to dissect what's going on in the world of Cubs baseball. He's got a really interesting story. And I wanted to talk to him about his story. And I wanted to talk to him about the way that I believe that he's changed how we how baseball is covered. It's it's not him alone. I'm not, I'm not saying that he revolutionized it, but I, I do think to a certain extent in Chicago that Sahadev is part of a, a new wave of baseball reporter that takes you inside the game in a way that's different from what we've seen in the past. So we talked about that. We We talked about him being a bit of a unicorn because you don't ordinarily see people who look like Sahadev covering baseball and we talked about that and we talked about the game itself how it's changed and and how to marry the objective and subjective so this is a a fun and dense conversation with one of I think the most interesting sports writers in Chicago so I hope you enjoy episode 78 Sahadev Sharma I think that I was thinking about this while I was on vacation I think that the way that you cover baseball is different from what I'm what I grew up being used to as a baseball reporter. And I think that your adaptation to the way that the game is going is really cool. So I'm wondering when you first started to venture out to do this professionally, was that always the goal or have you adapted as the games adapted? I I wouldn't say it was a clear goal. Uh, I would say I wanted to try and do something differently. I didn't want to change the way, you know, beat writing was done or anything like that. But I also had the luxury of when I first came to a ballpark, it was uh, the ESPN locals, which don't really exist anymore. Only in name, I guess you could say they exist. Uh, But I'd fill in for back then it was Bruce Levine and Doug Padilla on Cubs and White Sox. And 
you know, I could do the day-to-day stuff, but I wanted to do deeper dives. I wanted to do the stuff that I read on at the time at Baseball Perspectives or Fangraphs, but try and bring it locally. And, yeah, you know, like I remember writing something on, like, uh, Brett Lillibridge, you know, and, mm. and uh, who was the third baseman that would always have big uh, big September's moral, Brett Brent Morrill? Yes, yeah. Brent Morrell, yeah. <laughs> I remember writing something big on him in September. Do it. Like, you know, I didn't know everything that I needed to know, right? And and I kind of took too much about a September performance and said, hey, is he breaking out? Not thinking about, wait, this is against September talent, and it's a small sample size, and he hasn't gone through the league multiple times. You know, all those things. But still, I had the opportunity to kind of break that stuff down. I remember one that actually worked was me breaking down DJ LeMahieu versus Darwin Barney. And I said, you know, DJ LeMahieu could be the better player in the long run for this XYZ. A lot of reasons why, you know, still people, you know, shake their fist over this now. Not that not that that's what set the Cubs back as far as moves made. But, yeah, no, I, I definitely looked at it as an opportunity to do something different. And I always thought to break into this business the way I, I am set up, the how difficult it is, I have to do something different. I can't just do what everyone else is doing. And I felt comfortable diving into these things. I knew most beat writers weren't comfortable with the advanced stats, and I had always been comfortable with that. It just made sense to me. It, uh, I probably leaned on them too heavily early on. You know, I think now I, I try and focus on balance. I, I want to talk to scouts. I want to talk to front office members. I want to talk to people on all different sides of the game to really put a full picture and, and understand things. I remember Tim Wilkin used to always tell me, uh, you know, he, Tim Wilkins, one of like the greatest scouts in baseball, right? That's still around. Uh, he was the Cubs, uh, amateur scouting director, uh, under Hendry, uh, really highly respected. He's with the diamondbacks. Now Uh, he, he would always tell me, he's like, always remember that you're learning. And there were things that I think I'd say that I was very confident in. He'd be like, Wait, hold, pull back a little bit. Don't be so sure that that's the way it goes. You know, he's like, there are things that I'm still learning about this game, and I've been around it for 40 whatever years he'd been around, right? So that stuck with me because a year later he, he'd been proven right with something that I was so sure about. I can't even remember what it was, but I just remember texting him. I'm like, I'm always learning. Thank you for, you know, putting me in that place and reminding me that I don't don't be so sure of yourself. Don't assume that this stat tells you everything you need to know or don't assume that just because every a bunch of people are saying this this guy's going to be sunk by this, you don't know his work ethic. You don't know what type of what type of uh baseball smarts he has, you know, what what he's doing to make himself better. All those little things I've I've learned over the years is like, okay, don't just look at the numbers. Don't just trust that this this thing that you're seeing is what it's going to be like forever. Uh, so I'm trying to, I'm still, there are still times where I battle with myself about, you know, I really believe this, but why, why do other people believe X, Y, and Z? And what should I listen to? What am I willing to bend on? And and what should I be willing to uh, learn from? And, and I think it's a, it's a perfect example covering the Cubs, right? There are so many things that we thought three years ago sure. uh, that our opinions have changed and, and we have to be willing to reevaluate how we came to those conclusions. I don't want to, I don't want to. Uh, typecast you as just someone who uses numbers because one of the things I love of what you do is your use of video and I I think that that helps to tell the story even when before you were if you were just using stills mm-hmm. the the fact that you're using stills and video you go okay now I understand why you Darvish likes using that pitch because look at what happens if he's able to tunnel that pitch with his fastball like those things make a difference and I I feel like you've done a great job in 
in kind of connecting the old baseball fan to the new one. And I'm wondering, was there ever a point, and I'm guessing not at the athletic, that you got pushback on this is too smart, this is too dense for the person that's going to read it or hear about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, early on at ESPN, there were times where they said, yeah, this, uh, you know, this is great. This is a lot of information, but it's too much. And I'd have to like, there'd be like pieces that were probably 1500 words that they'd reduce to 800 or something like that. And, you know, I I think for a young writer, that's actually good. I I need to, I still find myself like, okay, I got to remove like eight paragraphs because I love to really hammer home points or I love to be like, I I don't want to, I want to cover every base and like, if, if someone in the comments says, what about this? It's like, yeah, I was thinking that, but I couldn't write the extra 400 words to make that uh, point the way I wanted to. It's just a waste of words sometimes. I write a lot, right? I guarantee I wrote that point at another point in time, and I still believe it, but this was a different topic that I was trying to mm-hmm. tackle, right? So there's, I'm, I, I think it's worthwhile to get that pushback, especially early on as a writer. Uh, I, I remember being frustrated by it at times, but really it wasn't that much. It wasn't like, don't do this. It was more like, hey, you know, this piece that we, we want done at this time needs to be kind of pushed in this direction. Focus it more on this, that what you're doing is fine. It was never don't do that. That's not going to work or that's not what we do here. Sometimes I got that feeling and I kind of, you know, that's probably why, I, you know, I was never hired full time at ESPN. I, I was behind the scenes on the radio side. And then when .com started uh, or the locals started, I started to write there. And I was always passed over for full-time jobs. And I understand, like, that was, A, A, you'd be taking a risk on on me at the time. And B, uh, you know, what I was doing was pretty different from a normal beat day-to-day. I didn't have radio experience at the time. I didn't have TV experience. They needed all that stuff. So I get that. But I also think what part of it was like, ooh, this is a little bit out there. This isn't just the day-to-day, can you handle the grind of the beat? which I've done both and I think is really important to do. I don't want uh, part of what I love about The Athletic is that we give everyone freedom. You don't have to write every day. You don't have to do the day-to-day grind of every transaction. Here's the box score. Yeah. But I think that's good for some young writers. I think the pressure of coming up with an idea every day, I think the pressure of I have to go talk to someone, just go talk to them. You, You may not have to write something that day either. Just go talk to three different people that day. There are times where I feel like I got nothing done. And then I look back and I'm like, you know, I had like three conversations. None of it was on the record or none of it is going to be a story. But I, I, I built a little ground with that guy. And, oh, I, you know, we cracked some jokes and, hey, maybe we're building a relationship. And, down and the you line, have that play. stuff in, in the back of your head yeah. for while you're watching the game, too. Yeah. They, they'll say something offhand that will make you think. It's like or they'll they'll start confiding in you about stuff that you're never going to write. But you know in the back of your head, and it will color the way you you write things in the future, right? So, so I think there is something to be said about the old school way of doing things, uh, especially writing daily. I think there's a thing that happens in the playoffs that uh, if you haven't had the pressure of writing every day, if you haven't had that on you, and then the playoffs come, and you're covering a playoff team, and now you do have to write every day. You can't not write if you're on the beat, right? And it's the playoffs. It's really important. You have to come up with something and come sometimes multiple ideas. Sure. Right. So every day, every day you have to do that and you have a deadline and now timeliness matters. Right. So all that stuff, suddenly the pressure's on and then you've never done that before. 
It's hard. 2016 was exhausting. It was a month straight of it. It was exhausting, but I was able to do it because of six, seven years before that, uh, freelancing and, and, you know, first-time, full-time jobs. I was there every summer. I was there all the time doing it for AP, doing it for ESPN, doing it for uh, Comcast at the time. I was freelancing and doing all that stuff. And did I feel pressure? No, but I had to get my work done. You know, I had to do it. There was no choice. You had to get that work done. And feeling that, like, making sure that you're able to get in that rhythm and say, like, okay, I got to come up with three ideas, more than three ideas, and and hopefully one of them I'm able to execute, right? I I think that matters in building yourself into being a really good writer when when it's not – not every time are you going to have a a week and a half to prepare this. I can go do six interviews – go back to someone and, and talk to them. I, I love doing those pieces. Those pieces are really fun. But I think you need a balance. What's a typical day for you like during the season? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously different home and road. Uh, I have two kids and a wife, and my wife works, and they're very important. So I have to put them first on days at home. But, uh, I mean, just just work-wise, uh, you know, uh it's mostly get to the ballpark four, four and a half hours before the first pitch. Uh, clubhouse opens about three and a half hours early uh, or three and a half hours before first pitch. Talk to some players. Uh, a lot of it is I, I try and do my research is is now like jotting down notes of ideas and then looking stuff up. Right. And then, OK, what do I have an idea here? OK, yes, there's something here. Uh, let's see if there's any numbers that I can, you know, get, bring back up what I'm saying to a player, if need be. I'm not going to throw numbers at them, but I'll say, hey, I've noticed you're doing this more. And then if they're like, really, you think so? And then I'll say, well, you know what? I saw this and this and this, and, and this is this is why I think that this is what the numbers are saying. Did something change or whatever, right? So I do some sort of research in that. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I want to I want to now I'm comfortable enough that I can and I've built up a rapport with the players enough that, that I you might eyeball yeah. it something. And- yeah. And say, hey, is am I seeing this right? Or what's going on when you do this? And then they'll lead me. And then I can. And then if I want to look up numbers, I can. If it's just going to be a conversation about mechanics and that's where, you know, video can come in or, hey, this guy really helped me with this. That Okay, now I have a coach I can go talk to or a front office exec I can go talk to. So, it, you know, sometimes it doesn't always have to be research, but I think it's important to use that time that I have in the clubhouse to talk to a couple people, uh, come in with some ideas and see where the conversations take me. Don't be strict about those ideas. Uh, be willing to adjust on the fly. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with I, I'm constantly talking about baseball, thinking about baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I'm able to do that because uh, I mean, my phone's going to buzz a bunch of times while we're here I know because I'm, I'm constantly talking about baseball and it's not always with, you know, some scout or front office exec that our listeners have heard of, right? It's, it's going to be some random scout or somebody that, uh, I've been friends with for years that is now in a front office or, uh, you know, I, I'm on multiple text chains with like. Uh, other writers and then there's a scout mixed in there and it's like two writers two scouts and and just some random dude who we're all friends with right so it's it's constantly talking about that and half the time it's not about baseball but the other half it's like we're bouncing ideas off each Mm. other or we're just talking and that helps spark another idea for one of us right so it's there's a lot of talking about baseball that i'm doing that helps just make it easy to talk to a player or to talk to a exec or to talk to a scout so when I'm in that clubhouse, when I'm talking to, you know, Chris Bryant, 
I have I've been doing this for so long that it's natural to talk to him. I just constantly am thinking about it and talking about these things. And when I bring it up to him, it's not like, oh, how am I going to get him to open up to me freely? I'm just doing it all the time. I love it, right? So, and like I said, it's I'm, I'm really good at, um, I shouldn't say I'm really good. I've gotten really good at splitting that up. Uh, since my family is important, they're not, they don't want to hear about, Chris Bryant's mechanics at the plate or you Darvish throwing more <laughs> more splitters or something like that. They have no interest in that. My son is getting into it, but not, you know, I, I can't dive deep it, <laughs> into it with the eight, You're not going to talk Woba with him. Yeah, yeah, he's not there yet. He's he's more like, you know, he just wants to watch the game and say, oh, wow, cool home runs stuff, or stuff like that, right? He's, he's more about, like, rooting for the Cubs and rooting against uh, the Cardinals in the playoffs, things like that. That's what, that's, that's where his focus is. It's not, it's not on breaking down the game. Not yet. I'm, I'm pushing him in that direction. Is we'll it cool there. though for, <laughs> for him to know that you are talking to Chris Bryan and Theo Epstein and Joe Madden? Yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, it's gotten normal for him because he's eight and as long as he can remember, I've been doing it. Hmm. So he doesn't he doesn't think it's that like he doesn't think it's crazy like remember the first couple of times I was on TV my wife would think it was a big deal that they'd try and watch stuff like that no, I I don't even mention it to them anymore you know it's just part of the job so yeah he he definitely thinks it's cool at certain times but he doesn't it's not like a, a fan like fans are more think it's crazier right or his friends parents think it's cooler than he does it's just dad. And dad talks about baseball with this other is what dad does. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he loves it. He loves baseball. He loves he, he's very excited that I get to go to a bunch of games, but he doesn't think of it as anything abnormal, I guess. So, you know, it's just just a normal day to day life. Was it always <laughs> going to be sports or was there yeah. other stuff that you wanted to do? I, maybe in the back of my head, it was always sports, but I never knew that until I was 24 25 did i ever actually put any effort into pursuing this um maybe i was a little bit younger i i I was pre-med uh starting college i had always wanted to be a doctor in my mind and my dad is a great great person worked his butt off to become what he is uh he's a he was he's a retired psychiatrist great at it came to this country in his uh what 1972 Three, he came to this country with a medical degree. Where did he his, come from? He came from India. Uh, he had. He tells a story. It, it, I, I remember it as he had eight dollars in his pocket. Now, when he tells it, it's no money in his pocket. So I wonder how much it actually was. Maybe it was twenty five dollars in his pocket. Uh, anyways, he had he had enough to get to his cousin's house in New York. Uh, stayed there, kind of found a place in Boston. Got a residency type thing i don't know the exact exactly all the details i've written about it so i have it written down and, and it's there uh but you know he he worked his butt off to get to where he wanted to be and he always he didn't want me to struggle uh like he did as a child his father left when he was young his mom didn't wasn't making a ton of money he joined the army to make money mm. so he he thought in his mind his way of guiding me was these are the safest professions, being a lawyer, being an engineer, being a doctor. And he just kind of, he, he, he didn't say that's all you can be. But in my mind as a child, it's like, well, I have to do this. I have to do one of these things. So I like wanted to be a doctor. 
And I think I would have loved being a doctor, maybe, but I didn't. I wasn't passionate about it. In freshman year of college, what did I do? I partied more than I went to, you know, my uh, pre-med classes. classes. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't interested in going to bio. I, you know, the weed out classes. I was getting weeded out because I wasn't that interested in it. And uh, and you know, I had some fun for uh, two and a half years in Champaign. Uh, I think I switched to computer engineer computer. Science, no computer engineering. I switched to before in my final semester in Champaign, and I dropped out because I didn't. I wasn't going to class. I was so lost. I didn't know what I wanted. Uh, lived in Champaign for a year. It was a great time. <laughs> I'll never, I'll never forget that time because it was really fun. I wasn't doing anything to help my career or my future, but I was making some good friends and and having a lot of fun and learning a little bit about life. I think and putting things in perspective because I. In the end, when that semester ended, when I and I had to go back home and and try and reassess, I wasn't happy. I was like, man, I don't want to spend my life, you know, drinking and partying all the time. Um, I wanted to figure out. I was trying to figure out what would make me happy, and and I was like, what am I good at? I'm good at math. Uh, I'll do civil engineering. So when I transferred to UIC, it was, I I was doing civil engineering. I had a job lined up six months from graduating, and. Uh, I think I was talking to my brother on the phone, who's five years older than me, and he kind of went through something similar. He he dropped out of school, he partied, and but he he got back on track and he got a degree in computer science and a master's and everything. And he so he'd gone through it and figured out like you know those tough times where you're just trying to figure out what the heck you want with life for sure. Yeah, and and he he could tell I wasn't happy, and he's like, "Man, you're you have a job lined up, you're." You're months away from graduating. What what's wrong? Why why aren't you happy right now? You're about to be done with school, which which I like. By the time this point hit, I've been in school for a while, right? I'd taken time off. I'd switched majors multiple times, uh, and and I and I just kind of unloaded. Like I think that was right around the time of his dream job. As silly as that is, that show really hit me. I remember studying for a test, one of the hardest classes I was in, and I just not not focused, not wanting to go any further with the studying, really frustrated that I was bothering with it and watching that and, like, I want to do that, but not really admitting it to myself, but thinking it, but, like, almost, like, pushing that thought out of my head, like, I have to focus on my school and try and finish this and just quit, like, thinking about silly dreams that aren't possible, right? And now we we look up and one of our colleagues is Mike Hall. Yeah, right? (laughs) And I think I was watching him at the time. I'm not even kidding. Like, I think he was on the screen at the time. And I basically told that to my brother, and I think it was the first time I'd said it out loud and even acknowledged that that was in my head, that, that that's what I wanted. And he was like, why aren't you going for it? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm too old. And I think I was 24 at the time. <laughs> so I look back now and I'm like, what a moron the 24-year-old was thinking he's old. Uh, and, and, he, and he's like, you're not too old. Stop being silly. He's like, if this is what you want, if you're going to be unhappy – in six months when you graduate and you have this job lined up and it's going to make you miserable, he's like, it's not going to work. You're going to, you're, you're, it's not going to last. Uh, he's like, just see what happens. Try and go for it. Mm. And it, and I did. And it, you know, my, my dad wasn't thrilled, but he kind of understood where I was going. They were just, both of them, both my parents were worried more than anything. Like if this doesn't work out, what are you going to do? And, and I had the degree as a backup, you know, but in my mind, it wasn't a, it wasn't an option at that point. Once I started, because you going weren't for, passionate about it. Yeah, I was. I I'd gotten to the point once I finally decided that okay, I'm going to go for this. Uh, 
I, there was something in me that said, I can't fail because if I do, I'm not going to like my life. I'm not going to be happy. And, you know, I think that a lot of people can try and say that. I was lucky because I, I am. I, I think I'm pretty good at this job. I'm, I'm passionate about it, but I'm good and I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to listen. I was willing to take in a bunch of different information and I'm able to process it. And I was also lucky. Like there's a lot of like I put in a year of unpaid internship. Why was I able to do that? Because I have a father who's a doctor who, if times got really bad, probably would have bailed me out. I had a girlfriend who's now my wife that was working her butt off as a nurse and supported my dream and was willing to pay bills while I was bringing in nothing almost, you know? Like I had my engineering job part-time still. My boss there was awesome. He's like, oh, you want to pursue your dream? He's like, we can use your help with these things around the office if you need money to make ends meet. We, great. It was very easy stuff, not big projects, just simple things around the office that mm. like CAD work that I could do and help out the team. Okay. And not a lot of like not a lot of time spent thinking about those things. Just go in the office, do it, leave. Right. Four hours a day, whatever. Six hours. If I could be there for eight hours. Sure. There were times I'd be there from like seven to five, drive to ESPN and like in, I get there in like an hour and and, you know, produce a J-Hood night show or something like that, right? So it was – those days sucked. Those days I had no money uh, and and people helped me out. But it's not – like I said, I was able to – I was lucky enough to do that. Some people were there to support me. I don't think I could have done that alone. Uh, and, of course, like all the other things I said, I, I worked hard. I was I was good at what I do. People noticed it, right? Bruce Levine noticed that I was good at what I do and brought me to the ballpark. Uh, people like Kevin Goldstein or Mike Farron, uh, they they noticed my work. Jason Parks, like these are guys that are big names now in the business. Yeah. And and they noticed my work and said, hey, this guy's pretty good. Uh, maybe give him a job. Or, or it'd be like uh, just reaching out and saying, hey, I noticed this piece. It was good. And those came at big moments. Uh, the keep going moments. Those – it was weird when they'd come. They'd come at times where I was feeling down, you know, like, uh, I'm ready to give up, give up on this. And, and then you have those moments where someone gives you just that little nudge. It, it's yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe in my head they came in big moments, like as I remember it. But I remember it as like moments where I was down, where I was ready to just be like, why am I doing this? I'm not making any money. I'm I'm really not making any headway here in mm. the grand scheme of things. And you'd get just a message like, "Hey, I I saw this piece. It was really good. You, like uh, I love this. I'm I'm glad you were able to dig into this or whatever. Just little moments like that. Just a message like a DM or an email, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, keep going. You can keep doing this. One more year. One more year. Type thing and. You know, eventually it got to a point where it's actually not just making ends meet, but doing well. I talked to a couple of people and said, because I was excited about the fact that you were going to be on the podcast. And one of them was Layla Rahimi. And she said, and I wasn't going to bring it up until you brought it up. She said, you should talk with Sahadev about what she had talked about on her episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, <laughs> and you you ran it down like being a first generation, having a father who who's an immigrant. How do you think that shaped how you got involved in this, and how do you think 
it prepared you for the work that you were going to have to put in to get what you wanted. Yeah, no, okay, as far as getting what I wanted, my dad my dad is a great example. Both my parents are great examples of work ethic. Okay, my mom should not be overlooked in this either. My mom, A, gave me my passion for reading and writing. My mom has a PhD in chemistry. She speaks four languages. When I was born, she stopped working at Abbott, and she, while she thought about getting back into that, into chemi- the chemi- chemical and uh, whatever, engineering world or whatever you'd, you want to call it, uh, she, she learned Spanish while I was a toddler and got fluent in Spanish and decided she wanted to help people in the inner city, people English uh, as a second language type stuff, underprivileged people trying to make ends meet that need to learn English. Or it, it, it evolved from teaching people English to just helping people in the inner city uh, get better, you know, whatever they need, better, better uh, rates at work, better, uh, what are the words I'm looking for, better uh, work uh, environment. Why can't I think of the, why can't I pull the word, uh, your work environment, like, so conditions, the, the conditions you're better working, working under. Conditions, yeah, yeah, like, so the things like that, uh, just little things like that should help with, and, and it was a big program that she helped uh, start, and, and she was great with that. Now she's, uh, now she does, she writes on her free time. She's had some work published. So she, a lot of the stuff that, I had no clue. She's very politically uh, active, and and she like really inspired me in a lot of different ways. I'm a lot like my mother. I'm, which frustrates my dad because I'm super laid back, like my mom and my dad and my brother, are super high strung and very, like everything needs to be done in a timely manner. We need to do this, this, and this, and it's just like you know, let's let's just get it done and not have as hard of a schedule. That's how I look at it. I get it. Everyone's different, but <laughs> but my dad also obviously worked his butt off. You know, he joined the army to make ends meet with for his younger sister and his mother. He uh, that paid for medical school for him. Like I said, he came here with very little. And he worked his way up to being a very highly thought of psychiatrist who had his own practice. And, you know, I saw that. Did I fully appreciate it as I grew up, was growing up? No, I needed something extra to push me to, to really make that drive, like, show up. And and this this business was what made it happen. So, yeah, I uh, the combination of watching them work hard definitely helped me achieve this goal but like you like you we, i kind of alluded to before it's not like my dad was like pushing me in this direction you know and he never i'll, I'll never put hold anything against him in the sense that he was holding me back it was all me like i i needed to make those decisions you know he was trying to guide me he always has been he's there's no one who's prouder of me than him like he's very happy that i've gotten to this point He's the reason I fell in love with baseball. He played cricket in India uh, with, like, some pretty famous cricketers. I don't know all their names, but he played with some people that were pretty big names. He was, like, the captain of his medical school cricket team. So he he loved cricket, and he came to this country. And I've written about this. He came to this country, uh, how he fell in love with the Boston Red Sox, and he moved to Chicago, fell in love with the White Sox kind of passed that baseball love to my brother and I, and I took it to an extreme. My brother, you know, watches, uh, and I just I just took it to this insane You dove extreme. right in. Yeah. And, so so, you, so your dad, he's, he's a cricketer. Yeah. He loved that game, and I'm sure probably wasn't as fulfilled as a cricket fan 
here in the United States. She's like, well, here's this game that's kind of a derivative of of cricket. Yeah. And he falls it, and then you end up loving it too. He, I mean, he encouraged it. He, it's all if if he if there was ever a moment where he was upset that I didn't pursue engineering or whatever medicine uh, harder than I did, uh, he it all stems back to him. I remember my first game in 1989 at Wrigley Field. I remember every game after that up until probably the late 90s was at County Stadium because my dad's practice was in Kenosha, so a lot of his colleagues, other doctors, had season tickets to the Brewers. So we'd go to Brewers games. I watched Robin Young and the AL, right? It was, no. Yeah, the AL. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, and AL teams back then, I mean, my dad loved Wade Boggs, so we would make sure to catch the Red Sox. I, you know, I saw Nolan Ryan's 300th win at County Stadium. So we, we spent a lot of time at County Stadium during the summer. Uh, I went to some Bears games. I went to very few Bulls games because tickets back then were impossible to get for yes, the Bulls. Yes, they were. And, you know, I went to maybe half a dozen, which was a lot. You know, I was lucky to see Michael Jordan in his prime. Uh, and it, baseball was always what I wanted to go back to. It was fun. It was easy to, like, you could get autographs before the game. You can just hang out and chat. I don't know. I always loved it. It was just so easy for me to 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 watch the games and fall in love with the sport. It's hard to explain exactly why, but I watch it now, and I still have that same love. And I... uh I can get reminded of it sometimes. I, I need to remind myself of that love because, you know, you get kind of jaded as a writer no, and, and covering it every day. And- there's no doubt. But I I think about that. I, I like empty stadiums. This is what I found out. And it's a privilege that we have for what it is that we do. I like it because it does remind me, like, this is what you always wanted. Like, this is where you always wanted to be. Oh, yeah. And so to have the ballpark as your office, like, I don't get that anymore. Like, it because I don't cover a beat. Like, you know, I used to cover the Bears beat. So I still have a couple of those moments. Like, my body clock still goes off in July. Like, I'm like, oh, training <laughs> camp's coming. Like, you know, <laughs> even though I'm not staying at the dorms or anything like that anymore. But it's it's a... There's something about it, and and the fact that we do get to be around it now as adults and get to sometimes, because every job is hard. Every, every job has its own issues. Mm-hmm. But then you step back and you realize you're standing on the field in 2016 as the Cubs are getting ready to start a World Series. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like that. Those are those are the moments, though, right? That that help you put it in perspective. I remember thinking that. I remember making sure when they won the NLCS in 2016, and I was standing on the field, and we're joking around because Jesse's running over and giving Tommy Lastella a hug, right? And and that Greenberg has that picture, like it has that picture and sends it to us every once in a while. Yeah. So you know, so there are moments that are complete inside jokes with us, and we're laughing, and then you take a step back, and you're like, oh wait, I just watch something completely historic and I'm on the field right now and you know 20 years ago I'd have been freaking out right or 10 years ago five years ago whatever it was I'd have been freaking out that I'm actually experiencing this not only am I experiencing it but I'm I'm super focused and I'm getting work done and I'm gonna go interview that guy that guy that guy and and do my job and then I'll be here till four in the morning writing and I can't imagine it being a different way right I, I don't want this is something I say a lot when people ask me, are you a Cubs fan? 
oh, so you must be a huge Cubs fan, right, when I tell them my job. And, and I'm like, not, no. Like, I was, sure. I, I loved the Cubs. That's, that's dead. That's, yeah. For 162 games a year, I'd watch every single one. Uh, I'd My emotions would go up and down with the way the team was playing. Uh, I was probably over the top with my reactions and my thoughts and the way I looked at the game and the players. Uh, and now I've... I'm I'm just it's a lot easier for me to digest sports being on this side of it. I I'm not a fan of a specific team, but I love baseball and I love breaking it down. I love doing my job, but it I do get a little bit and maybe it's unfair because I'm on this side now and I probably was similar to some of these fans, but I really don't like the the vitriol that comes towards the players. Some of them some when you fail at your job in baseball, sure, you deserve some, or any sport or any job, right? You, you deserve some criticism, right? And I get it. They're famous. They're, but the day-to-day criticism that some of these guys face what, just to, for failing in one moment, it, it bothers me. It, 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 I don't understand how fans have this super intense focus on these guys and release all their anger. I do understand it, but I don't understand why they can't have a little more perspective at times, right? Like, just... It doesn't need to be so angry. And maybe maybe it's almost like me reacting to how I was because I was so involved in this, I'd let a, a Cubs loss, you know, ruin my night. And, and I, I can't imagine me being happy if I would have kept allowing that, right? Sure, 2016 would have felt differently for me as a fan, but I don't want to, like, I loved what I got to experience in 2016. And maybe I didn't get the same joy as the fans did, but I don't. I, I think I'm happier that I don't feel that same down feeling and that anger that a lot of fans release their, you know, their frustration of their team in some really angry ways. And and I, I get it. But I also just, I don't think that's healthy for me or for anyone. There's a reason I avoid my mentions a lot when something when I tweet something that I know is going to get a lot of angry fan reaction. Just because yeah, that guy screwed up, and here's the story on it or whatever or. Here's what just happened, and ooh, man, Cubs fans are not going to be happy about that. There's some really, like, weird reactions in my mind, the way people react to the game. But, like I said, I think we all, as fans, have probably experienced that, you know, done something silly like that. We're way too passionate about this. When I say way too passionate, I'm just, you know, I I, I get it. We we should be passionate about this. I love sports. I think it's important to be passionate about them, uh, especially in our, you know, where we're coming from. Uh, we're trying to 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 tell the story. I think you have to kind of understand the fans' joy and passion about it. Right? It's it's funny because I always talk on this podcast about how people ask me, "Are are you a Bears fan?" No, not anymore. Like I grew up being a Bears fan, but once once you learn how the sausage is made, yeah. and you understand your responsibility to the fan base, my responsibility is to remove that emotional part of myself so that I can cover this team with clear eyes. Yeah. And then what what I've learned later on, like as I've gone on, is I'm okay with people being emotional. And my job is in a lot of cases to reflect that emotion, but I'm not generating it. Like yeah. I'm not generating it from myself. I, I always tell people because I get mad at – Athletes and front office people, because they'll say, well, you guys want us to lose. It's better for you if, if you lose. No, it's not. No. There's no model 
that says that that is what happens. From a selfish standpoint, I want the Bears to win because if the Bears win, that means more people are interested in what I have to say about the Bears. It's more opportunities. And quite frankly, it's more money Yeah, for, for us if the teams are doing well. It's a hard thing for people to to turn off and understand about what it is that we do, that we're not rooting for your team or rooting against your team. We're just trying to cover it the best way possible yes. and, let, and let you kind of figure out how you feel about it. Yeah, exactly. And no, I mean, would I would my job be easier right now if the Cubs are playing right now? Would would I be generating more, you know, subscriptions for the athletic? Yeah, probably. I mean, not that you know what's happening right now with the Cubs certainly is gener- generating a lot of There's interest. interest. Uh, but I mean, the Cubs in the playoffs is always a good thing for business, especially what I'm doing. You know, with the athletic, it, the Cubs are one of the top teams as far as generating subscriptions, and. Yeah, I. they need to do well or they need to be interesting in some way. If they win 70-something games next year, that's by, by July-ish. Once they, If they need to sell or whatever by July, I'm, nobody's going to be reading what I write from August to September. They'll read, start reading again in, in November and during the offseason, maybe, you know. Uh, but <laughs> you, you can't I, – I can't rely on – so there is a certain part of me that's like, okay, I need them to do this. I need them to be interesting in some way. Right. But I'm not rude. I'm not saying uh, I really need them to win tonight, you know, for me to go to bed happy. Mm. Uh, you know, that that changes. And it, it, I don't know. I, I I'm still passionate about certain teams and I want I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose my fandom completely. Who are the teams you're passionate about? I'm still a Bears fan. I'm a Illini basketball fan. I I love basketball and I wish you know the the Bulls could give me a reason to to be a big fan yeah. and and I know that the team looks maybe interesting as far as watchability goes uh this year I it, I don't know I got sucked into the Derrick Rose years I I followed a lot of the post Jordan years for no reason and I don't know why I watched but I you know I was also single for a while some of those years so I could get away with I I think that's part of it too you know my wife likes sports but she doesn't want to sit and you know unwind after a day at the hospital you know uh, <laughs> watching bad basketball or even at good basketball right most of that now is like I'm trying to get my son into more sports so what do they talk about at school? NBA a lot. You know what team they don't talk about at the school? Bulls. The Bulls. They don't care about the they Bulls. They talk about the Lakers and the Raptors and yeah. the Clippers and the Rockets. They, they they don't wear Bulls jerseys at school. They don't like that's that's what bugs me about the Bulls. And and I like it's hard for me to say no, 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 be a Bulls fan. Root watch the Bulls when I don't know that it's going to there's any reason why any chance that it could pay off. What's the payoff here? At least with the Bears right now, last season was really fun, and it's not as much of an investment as far as time, 16 games a year, and then hopefully the playoffs, right? That's what you're investing. You 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 can build your Sunday around hanging out with the kids and, and watching the Bears, make some, grill some food, you know, have some fun, make it an event, and, and it becomes like a family thing, right? So so that's why I love watching the Bears. And I, and I my dad was a huge, after after baseball, it was football. My dad was insane on Sundays. He'd go crazy. He went crazy for the Bears. So that, like, sticks with me. Bulls was always – it was because of Jordan. It wasn't because I just watched basketball, naturally. It was 
Michael was there, and how could you not fall in love with the Bulls and Michael Jordan? It was easy. It, that's what I grew up with. So, so that's why I think right now it's I'm, I'm, I want to fall in love with basketball again. The, the NBA is really fun, but I, I don't have it. I, I just don't have that desire to turn on a game every every night, and hopefully the Bulls can change that and then get my son into things. But like I said, it, it's all built around him right now. Uh, but uh, Bears and Illini basketball are my two things, and I'm. I'm a total positive train, total Homer fan for Illini basketball, always hoping for the best and believing that it'll happen. I think all my my uh, Cubs optimism from my you know early 20s has been pushed towards Illini basketball, and I'm just, I don't care what the results say. It's going to turn eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like it, but I, I, I'm in the same boat with DePaul, man. I, every Every year I just sit there and I go, Come on. <laughs> like, really? You brought up your wife a couple of times uh, in, in our conversation. What do you think she's taught you about perspective? Oh, man. She's taught me. Um, she's like my dad as far as she's, like, doggedly hardworking and has very high expectations for those that she believes in and loves. And she has high expectations for me. And uh, she... She fell in love with me because I was pursuing this. Like our first conversation, our first long conversation was me telling her, you know, I'm finishing up my engineering degree, but I'm not going to go work. I'm pursuing my dream. And that was like, you know, right before I think our a phone call right before our first real date. And and she said like that, like that convinced me that I wanted to go on this date with you and and all this stuff. So. So she like just she's always what she's taught me is like there are things worth like really suffering for in a way like I was like I wasn't happy as I was pursuing this goal at times, but I'd almost felt like I'd made a promise to her to not give up. And she never as down as I got like she never said or as tight as money got. She never said you need to stop. Right. She never said this is silly. This is not going to work. You're making no money and we have bills to pay and I'm pregnant or anything like that. None of it. Never once did that come out of her mouth. I know she thought it. I know there were times where she wished that I would have just switched. But she was never, ever going to tell me that. And she was never going to never going to leave me or, or you know, say that this this is a silly pursuit. Right. She was always going to be emotionally and uh, supportive and there for me. Uh so there were that was important that was really important that still is important you know it's important in our relationship now because she's gone part time and she's pursuing her uh doctorate and trying to become a nurse practitioner so it's now my turn to say like okay you know oh, studying's hard school sucks but you need to do this this is you took all that time to support me when i was pursuing something now it's my turn type thing right so she's taught me that perspective where i can't it's not about me. <laughs> it's it's about, you know, her. It's about Sawyer. It's about Penny. It's about taking care of them and making sure that our long-term happiness is taken care of, whether that means that I have to work a little harder and make sure and negotiate a little harder when my contracts come up, things like that, to make sure that she doesn't have to stress like she stressed when I was making no money. 
then then yeah, you got to do that. And it, we, it's funny, we, we've been talking about this just the past couple of weeks because it's like, okay, let's go over the bills, let's do this, this, that. You know, not fun, never fun stuff to really talk about. But it's like, okay, we're gonna make this work because in two years you'll be done with school, and the payoff is nice. You know, it's a big payoff, but. For two years, we need to stop. Uh, you know, maybe we do one less swim lessons for the kids. Maybe we don't go out this night when everybody goes out and we we, we skip that fun event. Mm. Whatever, you know. In the long run, it pays off. And we already, I did that. I, I did all that sacrificing years ago, too, for, for other things, right? It, this is not nearly as bad. I, like, we're in a much better place now than we were whatever it was, eight years ago, nine years ago, when I was trying to get my foot in the door and, and you know, making, getting bounced around and false promises and whatever else was going on in my career. So this is this is easy. The broadcasting and <laughs> journalism industry? Yeah, that, that stuff tends to happen. Do you think about how much of an outlier you are? Because I think about it, and I know I don't know if I would consider it a failing but it's something that I noticed, like, for a long time. Like, I'm like, oh, well, there are not a lot of black reporters in baseball clubhouses or in, in locker rooms. And that's changed. Do you ever think about being an outlier? Yeah. there. It's. I think it's kind of mixed for me. Um, I've been an outlier all my life, in a sense, right? And when I say that, I mean, I grew up in uh, – the north suburbs of Chicago, heavily white uh, school, heavy, heavily white high school. Uh, so I've always been one of the few people of color. And I never re- – like it was hard. It, it was years before I kind of associated myself as a person of color, right? Because I grew up around white people. but All my friends were white people. It almost felt like I was white. But if not for people pointing out that, oh, wait, you can't be American, you're not white. You know, type things. There were a few kids that would say that, and not not nearly enough to make me uh, hate your high school yeah, experience. Yeah, or... I, I still have like you know some of my best friends are still from high school, uh, who I regularly talk to, hang out with. So I, it was a great high school experience. But those moments stick, right? It's like oh, so I struggled with the fact that I was brown when it seemed like everyone else was white. Because that's where I grew up. And then you go to college and you kind of, things kind of get, oh, wait, that's not how everyone is. Oh, everyone doesn't think this way. Everyone, and, you know, I'm painting a very broad brush, like I said. Uh, But uh, as I, and it wasn't always at the forefront of my mind, even after that, even after college, even after starting in this business. And there were comments that were made along the way that now I think about it's like, whoa, that's messed up. (laughs) There, I remember someone telling me uh at one point i won't say who it is uh but they they told me don't don't ever forget that you'll never get fired from a job nobody wants to fire the brown person and i was like wow wow okay at the time i was just like i don't think that's how that works uh but wow okay like it I like it was just really I mean it took me aback and I was uh it just little things like that happened along the way. I didn't really start thinking about it until I started until I had my first hiring experience until I was hiring people. And I got all these emails 
And, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but most of them seem like white men, right? Like, I, it was always, uh, there, were, there were definitely no women that applied. And, and I was, and when, when it happened, I just kind of, I just kind of picked the best people. And then someone made a comment to me. They're like, you realize it's all white men that you're hiring. And I'm like, yeah, that's nobody else applied. And I was like, so I was like, how do I fix this? And I talked to some people that I trusted that, like, how do I get, it's like, I don't want, how am I excluding these people? I don't want to say that they're not applying. What are we doing to exclude these people? And obviously it's a much more complicated answer than, well, this is your fault for not, you know, going through the proper channels to amplify this, you know, application process. It's a, it goes much deeper than that, right? And so I tried to figure out – I did little things. I didn't do enough at the time to, to really spread that word. I talked to some other people, and they kind of uh, amplified the, the, the openings, and, and I did get a more diverse set of candidates. Uh, it didn't work as well as I wanted it to in the end, but, uh, you know, it's all it, – the process that we have that – I mean, what, what did I say before about I, I couldn't make, make it happen – Unless I had the support of my parents and my and my wife, right, in financial ways too. So, not every. I mean, who's going to suffer from that? You know, people that have suffered from that for centuries, right? So it's going to be people of color. It's going to be women. That's like that. There's. It's hard to break into this business when there's not already an established base of people like you in this business uh, to help you to to show you the way to to show to the bosses that, oh, these people are just as good at this job as everyone else. You know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's much deeper than, than I, I don't want to get too deep in, <laughs> in the weeds here, but it's much deeper than just our business. Right. Well, well, what you brought up with your mom, uh, I, I think we all probably need reminders of it, but I think that sometimes the conversations about race are binary, white, black, yeah. And there's nothing in between. And I've had conversations with Michael Kim about this where he said that he he's felt invisible in the discussion of of race that as a Korean man he feels invisible. And I I always am trying to to educate myself on what other people are going through because I'm sure that I see it through that lens, that the, yeah. the, the lens is, is black and white, uh, figuratively and literally. So how do you view some of those bigger issues, especially like thinking about your, your, your mom and her say, oh, I'm going to learn Spanish. Now I'm going to help people who don't speak English, who probably speak Spanish. And like that kind of connectivity amongst a larger community i think is is really endearing like that's yeah. fantastic yeah no i i agree that at times i i feel like wait why are you saying that you know when the athletic has been criticized for not being diverse enough early on especially and and it was pretty fair criticism i'd say but i it would frustrate me when when i would get ignored or james would get ignored as a person of color uh, just just completely, you know, swept under the rug like we didn't exist or Lauren would get ignored as, as a woman, right? We're, we're the minority. Sure, I get it. It's There's a bigger problem that you're trying to shine a light on. But I also felt at times it was almost like 
it our hirings don't matter and they're not part of uh, you know uh, creating a diverse environment uh but i also do feel like as an indian and not a black person and not a woman i i can be quiet about it i have had some you know advantages thrown my way and and i don't fully know the struggles of women or 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 black people i i have my own experiences that i think are not nearly as big of a deal they're they're my own personal things and that i deal with and that i think are important issues but i don't i, I think there are bigger things at hand here that i cannot make it about myself I, I feel very foolish and selfish to do that uh it just it doesn't seem like i like i personally i don't think i've been held back in any way right so to make it about me in any way feels really like I'm missing the point. I I'd lo- I want to make sure this this work environment is a, is an open place for people of all backgrounds. Um, I don't think my experience is one that that really shows that that's possible, though. Do you know what I mean? Really? Well, because I'm I've already I I adapted to this world years ago. Like my experience growing up was the world of you know it, it was a heavily populated white world affluent and so i was adapted to that as a kid so this is this i didn't have to adapt to this world that i'm coming into right i was already ready for it i already knew how to like i my background and my uh cultural upbringing was the same as everybody else right i'm not coming into a foreign environment uh while others may be coming into an environment that they're not as comfortable as and and also that that we're not like someone like me who grew up in that 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 environment doesn't fully understand. Do you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, like it's but, it's not. But the only thing is that I, that's why I go back to 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 you as an outlier. Like I. So do you ever feel that way? Like when you're inside a clubhouse or you're in a big press conference, does that ever cross your mind? Like there there there's a. A few people, there are a few Indians that are at the highest levels sure. of what we do. But do you ever look around and go, why aren't there more people like me? Or do you ever feel as if you are outside of the collective? Um, there were probably times that I did. Uh, I, I'd say to answer the part of why are there not more people like me, I feel like I know that answer. And I, and I feel like. What's the answer? I mean, there's there's a lot of problems in our business and our world, like that we need. We're still working to fix these. I mean, issues. your your name alone. Yeah, no, it's frustrating. Believe me, my name is one of my the most biggest frustrations that have evolved in my life over the course of my life. I went from being, you know, dreading the first day of school uh, because I knew my teacher was going to butcher my name to trying to get them to call me something else and then people joking about that and realizing that's not going to work and then eventually being called Sid which is my brother's name because I was called Sid because of some silly it was a basketball game uh in 7th or 8th grade it was 8th grade team played the plays the teachers right and and so there was no coach for us our coach was our team captain so he's writing up names and plays and there was already an SS on there. So he's like, uh, I'm just going to write Sid since everybody knew my brother. So he just wrote Sid. And that stuck. That stuck. That was eighth grade. 
and it stuck, and I let it stick because I couldn't stand how my name put me a, a spotlight on me, right? Everyone, I had to explain it. And then early in college, I just let it ride. I let people introduce me as Sid. And then at some point— Someone t- actually told me that your nickname was Sid. Yeah, and and, and it's fine. I, I don't blame people because I never put a stop to it. And at some point, I I was like, what am I doing? This is not my name. It's my brother's name. And I need to put a stop to this. And once I got into this business, uh, I think it was engineering. I think I put a stop to it at my first workplace. But also in this business, I was like not even mentioning that that's uh, that's what people used to call me. All my friends now that that I see regularly, either the ones that I've met post-college, even the ones in college that I see regularly or high school, they they've made an effort to stop that because, you know, we've had conversations over the years. Like the only reason that was that was happening is because. I was so I lacked confidence in myself and I didn't like having to explain my name over and over again. And it was a big point of contention. And now I'm like, it's your problem if you can't pronounce my name. Sorry. Like, I know I know that it's not Eric or Joe or Mike uh, or John or whatever. You know, they're, they're, those names are easy, but, but they're only easy because you grew up with them in, in in this country. You can you can put in the extra minute and a half that it may take you. How do you to, say it? I see. I don't say it the Indian way. It's pronounced, uh, my parents would pronounce it Sahadev, and I pronounce it Sahadev. And that's, that's, the, that's the compromise I made with myself to feel comfortable with it. Because when I say Sahadev, I feel like I'm putting on an Indian accent. And I don't, I don't love that. And maybe I'm not, but I, I was, I'm not comfortable like reminding myself how to pronounce it. I just want it to flow out of my mouth. If It's my name, right? And, and some people... Uh, some people will say, well, that's not the name your parents gave you. They gave it to you for a specific reason. Believe me, my parents want me to feel comfortable with my name. <laughs> they want me to – what my parents want is not for me to stick with whatever they decided my name was. They want me to feel comfortable saying the name they gave me, right? So so this is how I'm comfortable saying it, and that's my own little spin on it, uh, you know, and maybe I'm kowtowing in some ways, but I don't think so because it's I'm kowtowing to myself. Like this is what I'm comfortable with. And and some people may say like, ah, how dare you make it easier for people to pronounce? I'm making my making it easier for myself is how I look at it. And and I like I and I you're like not that calling I'm, yourself Sid. Yeah, I like that I'm sticking with my name and I'm just saying, hey, look at look at it, look at how it's spelled. I promise you'll be able to pronounce it if you don't overthink it. Just just say. The letters there. Just just pronounce them out, and you'll get close. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty easy to spell. Yeah, the the it's easy. Like once you see it there, and I and I understand. I, I get it. I get what's going through someone's head. You see that it's completely foreign to you. You've never seen that before, and you almost panic. You're like, "How am I supposed to pronounce this?" Just say the letter. Like sound them out. Just like I'm teaching my daughter how to read. Just sound it out. I promise it'll work out in the end. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> And that's that's really what like people still ask me. So what do people call you? Is there a nickname? And I'm like, listen, I I'm not. There's no nickname. There's no shortening of it. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm sure you can get it right. If you wanna, if you're going to like come up with a nickname for me, I'm not gonna get mad. Just don't call me Sid, you know. And don't like I'd prefer like Dave's fine. I, like Dave, people call me as a joke. Like uh, some of the other writers, we joke about it because because I've made I've, I've told them about that before, but. But mostly I it's, you know, I really don't think it's that hard is the bottom line. Like that's like I was so worried about other people and and making life convenient for them. I I stopped thinking about what made me comfortable and and uh, 
and just like lost my name and that like at some point around you know late college i was like i can't believe i allowed this to happen it like completely got out of control and it happened when i was you know a teen i didn't know any better uh so yeah no it was it's the name is definitely something that that is very different and is a big issue in my life but getting back to it like like i said i i hope it doesn't sound like i'm brushing brushing away your point about being a, a minority in this business no, I think you. I think you explained it pretty well. Yeah, and right, right in there and talking about your name. I mean, this. I. I don't think this has anything to do with me being black, but part of the reason that I hate people calling me Larry is that I have never once introduced myself <laughs> as Larry. Never. My name is Lawrence, and I've always gone by Lawrence. Yeah. It's funny because when I got to high school, and at the time HF was mostly white it's now like completely flipped which is really interesting yeah there's a lot of indians in libertyville now by the way yeah <laughs> yeah apparently my one of my good friends is a teacher at at the grade school i went to and she's like literally i probably can pronounce indian names better than you because i have to every first day of school i have to memorize half the kids in the class or well that's are... great that's moving in a good direction yeah. but a lot of the kids there's there's like one person like occasionally ben bradley calls me Larry because that's what he used to call me until I was like, that's not my name, man. <laughs> like, it's, it's 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 a whole thing. Like, my mom named me Lawrence for a reason. Yeah. So I I went through this, and people used to, at the score used to get, like, well, how dare you say that I can't call it? Well, it's not my name. So I'm not, I'm not yeah. like – it, that's not really a hard request. I know. People think you're being super sensitive about it or you're being too... It's like, get to know me. I'm pretty laid back. I promise. Yeah. I'm not going to like get upset about things. And I really won't even get upset about you calling me another name. But in in all reality, I'll feel like you're not really respecting me because I told you what my name is and I told you there's no nickname. There's no other way yeah. to really address me. And, and, <laughs> I, and I have a bunch of nicknames that I will answer to. Sure. But one of them's not Larry, yeah, so, right? so, <laughs> so I'm not sure what you're trying to do. Um, let, I just want to get back to baseball real quick. I wanted to to ask you, what do you think is the next like frontier in baseball coverage? Oh wow, in baseball coverage, That's and you can a, add yeah. you can add it to the game if you want to talk about it from the perspective of where the game goes next. I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's that's hard. I, I'm good at adapting, and I'm good at, uh, I guess I'm not, I haven't thought about what the next frontier is as far, I mean, I, I guess I should be thinking about it, but uh, maybe maybe that's what, I, I let my bosses try and figure that stuff out. I, I like, I'll say this, when when the Athletic came around, that's what my idea was of how I wanted to attack beat writing. Right. What we talked about early on, that it didn't have to be the transaction. It didn't have to be everything that you can get on Twitter. You don't need to write about uh, you need to write about Joe Madden's fire or whatever you want to call it. Firing is is decoupling. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You you have to write about that. But you don't you don't write. I don't want it to always be today. You know, the Cubs and Theo Epstein let go of Joe Madden today, blah, blah, blah. That The lead, the AP lead, right? It doesn't need to be how mm-hmm. everything is done. Like every bit of news, every transaction, A, doesn't need to be written about. 
and B doesn't need to be covered in the same way and doesn't need to be we need to churn this out and get it out right now right and I, I appreciate that we were that 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 works or at least so far we're showing that it can work to a certain degree because it got a lot of when you say when you asked me before did people tell you not to do that I, basically what I got pushback on was that we don't have to cover all this stuff right let's just cover a, a lot of it and and then also do big more deeper dives and, and stuff like that that a, a company was willing to do that and do that not just for me but everyone is doing that that was their plan like the you know I, the the athletic is hardly perfect i don't want to act like we're some perfect company that's better than everyone else but it was perfect for me when that came along i was very unhappy at baseball prospectus i was underpaid and overworked uh and and the idea, the concept that they came to me with is like, I was like, that's what I do. You don't need to push me or sell me. Like, you know, make me an offer. Let's see what it is. If it's if this company goes under in nine months, at least I got nine months of fun of doing what I want to do and being paid well. You know, like I was able to do that at Baseball Prospectus, but I, I couldn't. Like I was, A, I was editor-in-chief of, of BP Wrigleyville. I had to try and pay a, a staff like terrible wages. Uh, that I felt embarrassed about, that I apologized to them repeatedly. But then because I was paying them so late, I couldn't trust that uh, so low. I couldn't trust that they would provide work on a t- in a timely manner, right? So then I had to cover that. So then I'm working more than I'm getting paid for, and mm-hmm. I'm editing them. So it, it was just I was, I was miserable. I was unhappy doing my dream job, right? So you, you have to be compensated well to do this job. It's, it's a a hard exhausting job and and to say that anybody would do it yes anybody would do it not anybody can do it i don't care if you think you can do this it's exhausting and it's hard and you have to make relationships you have to not only do you have to understand the game you have to be able to talk to people you have to be able to talk to people and draw things out of them that sometimes they don't want to get out drawn out of them but you're drawing it out of them because you know how to ask the right question and you know how to build a relationship with them so to tell me that anybody could do this job you can't not anybody can, okay? I'll defend myself on that. Like, I, I know I'm lucky to be here, and I it's a great job, but uh, and I caught some breaks to get to where I am, but it's not easy. And and you have to you have to constantly be working. Like I said, I'm constantly talking on this phone, and I'm texting people uncomfortable questions sometimes, hoping for an answer, get ignored for two days, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, that wasn't ignoring. I just forgot. It slipped my mind, and this guy actually isn't mad at me, and you're overthinking every text that you send in your head, right? <laughs> so... So it's a it's a constant it's a constant job it's a uh, it, it can drive you nuts, uh, but that we finally, but that we finally covered it in a way that allowed me to do my job the way I wanted to and and that we that we're proud of paying our our writers and and everybody that works for us well. And that's something that I was excited about that and I'm glad to see it works. I don't know what the next frontier is. I don't know. You know, I like that we're doing more podcasts. I like that uh, when it's not a pivot to video, but it, there is there is video. There are documentaries, like half an hour long documentaries that we're doing. Uh, something that, you know, when the right story comes along, I'd love to be a part of and, and do more video stuff like that and, and dig deeper into stories and, and see if I can transition some of the stuff that I can put into word form into video form and and see how that comes out stuff like that i think is fascinating there's going to be stuff that that probably i need to catch up on in in, you know 10 15 years that won't that that isn't that none of us really know about right like that we need to i i just need to be 
my constant thought is I can't be caught, you know, behind the times. I need to, if I hear about something and people are talking about it all of a sudden and I'm like, well, why don't I know what that is? That's when I feel a little like, okay, I need to catch back up. But what's going on here? And that doesn't happen very often. I mean, I mean the way we kind of live our lives now, it's hard to fall behind on anything, right? You're, we're on Twitter pretty frequently. Yes. It, with you, you're getting phone calls. It, you know, your your producers are screening calls. You're working with younger people. That's the other thing. Tony's young, right? Yep. Uh, I have colleagues that are young. Like these text chains that I'm on, some of the people are like 24. I What do I have in common with the 24-year-old? Turns out a lot, but also not a lot. And there are things that I don't know <laughs> that that they keep me attuned of without even realizing it. They'll just bring it up and think that it's a normal thing. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to ask them because I don't want to be the old guy. So I'm going to Google that. <laughs> and, and, and and imagine like coming full circle where you thought 24 was too old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> like how crazy is that? Like you thought 24 was too old for you to, to pursue this dream. And yeah. now you're looking at the 24-year-olds going – Wow, they're so young. <laughs> what the hell are they talking about? I don't What's know what like? they're saying. <laughs> I don't know what Tony's talking about. What does he mean? That music slaps. I don't know <laughs> what, what any of that stuff means. I I love the way that the athletic has has changed the game. And they've changed the game. It's weird. Almost by going retro. Yeah, right. We're gonna we're gonna put an emphasis on writing. Imagine that. Yeah. And it's worked. It's worked. And I think, you know, people compared us to the national at first and like, well, that didn't work. So this won't work. When did the net? Do you remember the year that the national came out? Do you remember that? But I mean, it it wasn't like the Internet wasn't a thing. Like, that's why the national didn't work. Because not everyone had easy access to it. And, you know, you didn't have the same promotional tools that you have now. It had nothing like as long as we you know, continue. I mean, we're growing fast. We're hiring like crazy. I have no, I don't know enough about business to know, to tell you the future about the company. Uh, All I know is that if we continue to hire the right people, the right writers, the right forward facing people and continue to put out quality product, people will pay for it. People want good, good writing. They want insightful work. They, you know, it's the first place I go. I'm not saying that just because you're sitting here. It's the first place I go every morning. I trust that between Patrick and I, it's going to be very difficult to have something that we don't have to get it somewhere else. And it's and I guarantee you we'll have we'll have a few extra tidbits that nobody else has. I, I think and and don't forget that Patrick and I aren't working alone. We like Ken Rosenthal is constantly texting with us as well. The three of us constant like the Cubs are a big team. I think Patrick has a ton of sources. I know I talk to a bunch of different people, and we don't overlap. That's the other thing Patrick and I talk about a lot. It's like, well, I heard this. Oh, I heard this too. And it's like, wait, where did you hear that from? Mm-hmm. No, nope. completely different person, completely different place. It's really, it's a really good work environment for me because Patrick, uh, Patrick, first of all, is very encouraging. He's very good at saying, hey, he'll reach out and say, hey, that was a great piece that you wrote today i probably need to do that to him more often but he's really good at like he's he's a like a more of a traditional journalist than i am he's very good at at coming up with well here's the hook here's what here's i'll tell him an idea he's like yes lead with this i'm like oh good yeah i like that i didn't think of that hook 
and I can tie it into this and do that, blah, 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 right? He's always really good at, like, this is how you can draw the reader in because we both have similar ideas. The way we attack the ideas can be very different. There are times when we write about the same thing and the reader won't even realize that we've written about the same thing like four days apart because we did it completely differently. We take completely different angles on the same topic almost. It can be the same idea, and I'll be like, ah, Patrick, I really wanted to write about that. He's like, well, this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, that doesn't sound like how I'm going to do it. We can make this two separate pieces, and we can give the reader two different viewpoints about a very similar topic. And it's probably hard for, uh, you know, to have two beat writers in most cases, but we, I think we both trust each other a lot, and we both, we both know that the other is talking to people and we don't overlap in a lot of ways. So it's just – it's a really good partnership in that sense. And I, that's probably like taking our coverage to another level the past two years. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, you've been someone who's been on my hit list for this <laughs> podcast for a really long time. But timing and baseball seasons yeah. can tend to get in the way. So I don't want to keep you away from uh, your wife and your kids uh, longer than I have to, but I wanted to thank you because I I really appreciate you being on. And I think that you lend a perspective to to sports coverage overall, but specifically sports coverage in Chicago that is very much needed. And and yes. as a consumer of your work, I love it. Like I feel like I get smarter as a baseball fan because of the stuff that you and Patrick do. So please keep it up, and, and thank you for being on the podcast. Of course, man. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm a listener, so I, I've enjoyed all the work you've done, and you know, I'm happy to be a part of the show. Right on, man. Thank you. All right, so there's a lot there with Sahadev, and I'm I'm so glad that he was able to make make this happen because I I really enjoy his work, and I'm so glad that he had time to to be on the podcast and. He's one of those those people that I kind of want to bring back. Like, I wish we would have had more time. But, look, he got kids, man. <laughs> He's trying to give back to him, and his wife is nice enough to lend him to us for the podcast this week. But the way that he covers the game, I, I think it, it makes for a smarter fan. I think that, that we're better because of the way that he covers the game. So thanks to Sahadev, and I can tell you he's not going to be the last baseball reporter that I talk to this fall. Trust. I'm also um, I'm experimenting with some some tech when it comes to the podcast, like so I can have a greater reach. Because there are people that I can't get into the studio, or maybe don't live in Chicago. So I'm going to start messing around with um, doing some skypes or some zooms. And recording the audio, and my hope is that I can, that the level of audio will be close enough to studio quality that you won't get mad at me. Initially, like the next few guests are going to be in studio, but I I'm already like working down the road to figure out how to make Skype interviews a little bit more interesting, and I it is going to be a lot more work for me, but that's okay. As I told you, there's a recommitment to House of L because it's a labor of love. It's one of the things I found out while I was on vacation. And I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm not even going to worry about advertisers anymore. I'm just doing this because I like talking to interesting people and you seem to enjoy the content. You can also email me, houseoflpodcast at gmail.com if you have thoughts on what's going on with the podcast. Um, this email from Rayan. R-E-Y-A-N? Is that Ryan? All right, Ryan. 
right? Lawrence, my name is Ryan, Ryan Ali, and I'm a writer working on a new book about NBA Jam coming out October 22nd. Wait, that's already, oh, is that today when I'm recording it? NBA Jam is the definitive story of the billion-dollar arcade games creation. Maybe I should talk with this guy. Is that what he's that's, is that what he's offering? I think that's what he's offering. Sometimes stuff just comes into the email like that. Well, I guess maybe we'll have a conversation with this guy about NBA Jam. I was hoping maybe he'd talk more about the podcast, but it seems like he he at least likes the podcast. So that's good. All right. Guys, you need to email so that I don't I have better emails than that. I mean, it's not a bad email, and I might put them on, but oh, here's a follow-up from last week. <laughs> so when the Bears played in London, I wore an ascot because I was like, oh, I'll be super fancy. And so this guy was like, Man, don't be wearing no ascots. And you if you heard last episode, I told him to mind his business. Wear what I want to wear. So he hit me up and he said, Lawrence, I apologize for the ascot. Did not get the London connection. Man, I love your Bears acumen, and you have the pulse of the team. Much respect. That's from Howard. Well, Howard, I appreciate you getting back to me. (laughs) Sometimes you got to clap back, folks. You got to tell people to mind your business. Shout out to my man Jason Goff, who made his debut yesterday. On NBC Sports Chicago, my man was wearing powder blue. And then his sister, Shayna, posted a picture of him as a kid wearing a similar suit. He gets away. I can't. I think because I think it would look weird, especially on me because I'm lighter skinned. I don't know if I can get away with, like, the pastels. But Jay's got the darker skin. He can get away with that. It's different. But he looked good. He's also the only guy rocking a boutonniere. I like to rock an ascot occasionally. So how are my business? Thank you for listening to the podcast today. This ridiculous podcast that we do. But it's fun. And I'm glad that you enjoy it. I got another great guest coming up for you next week. I'm going to talk with Evan Moore. And I'm going to try to get back on a weekly schedule with really good guests. I would I implore you to go back and listen to the last few episodes of House of L. The Gary Goldman episode, the Shakia Taylor episode. Man, she is rocking it. More great guests to come. Thanks for being patient and sticking with the pod. I'm Lawrence. I'll talk to you next time. Peace.